In this episode, Ross Tenenbaum, CFO at Avalara, describes why he left investment banking for the lure of CFO, outlines the key components of a high-performing finance team, and shares the automation priorities he's focused on for the year ahead. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook, where each week you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. One last thing, we want to hear from you, our listeners, to learn how we can make the CFO Playbook even better for you. Head to our show notes to find a link to our listener survey. As a thank you, you'll be entered to win your choice of an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy Tab S7. We'd love your feedback. So Ross, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Your background is a really interesting one. So you started off in software in a variety of positions with the like chief of staff position being one of them, but then also working in corporate finance before moving into investment banking um, for a long period of time with some of the, the leading investment banks in the world. But more recently, just flipped back across into software and, and now in the position of, uh, of CFO, as you said, for the first time. So can you speak a little bit about that journey and, and how you moved yeah. from software into investment banking and back again? You know, I started in a startup post-college, actually, I was the finance department. It was just me. I was opening the mail, taking the bills, posting the payables, receivables, closing the month. We had an external uh, CFO consultant that helped me and audited me. And that's kind of where I learned some of the you know low-level details of day-to-day you know, accounting and, and finance. And you know, was at that company for a number of years. And I, I really tried many jobs at that company. So I maintained the finance department, built it out, and um, continue to do that. But I wanted to try other things. So I actually, uh, I went and I did sales for a little while. I did sales operations. I then ended up in business development, did a lot around um, the go-to-market side as chief of staff to the person who really ran the revenue side of it. And for me, it was about just getting an overall experience in finance and operations. And when I left that company, I went back to business school and and then into banking, got into uh basically investment banking for software companies. So I was always in software, right? I wanted to stay in software. I had grown up really being interested in software. I worked at the software startup. So I did investment banking, advising people on M&A, uh, corporate finance, IPOs, follow-ons, debt transactions, all that stuff for 10, 10 11 years. Uh, it was a great time, learned a ton about, you know, not only the capital markets and, and, and M&A, but really the strategy of a company. You know, how do you think about strategy? How do you think about what your competitors are doing? How do you think about moves you should be making or not making? And it got me some really great exposure to boards and executive management teams. And I got really good visibility into the differences of how mostly high growth software companies, what I was covering, run. And I think that that was really valuable experience for me as I'm now at Avalara because I've been able to draw back on a lot of different things that I've seen companies. So I wasn't on the inside, you know, deeper into it as I am now, but I was able to see, you know, what good looks like, what not so good looks like, and different ways that companies implement practices and processes and systems and whatnot. 
And I was really longing for getting back into a company. I love banking. I was enjoying it. I was doing pretty well in it. But I really was interested in getting back into a company. When I did IPOs, I really loved working with the executive teams who were building a company. They were kind of all in the trench together, building something, creating value for their shareholders, for their employees, for their partners, for their customers, for themselves. And I really just longed, you know, to get back into that team-based sport altogether and build something. And so Avalara was my my client, Ross. Uh, I had taken them public as a banker. I had known them for, it's probably eight years now. Uh, I've been here for three years, but but been eight. Our CEO and I started talking about opportunities and, and uh, he brought me in to run a certain area of our business that were acquisitions. Um, they were acquisitions and they were still running on their own. And he brought me in to actually uh, be the general manager of that group and really run the operations and the P&L and get all that experience. And then when our CFO retired, I was going to have the opportunity to take that on. And mm-hmm. so that all worked out. And so today, you know, I, I've been CFO for two years and and I also still run those businesses. They still report up to me. So it's been a really awesome balance of operational role plus the CFO role. And I, I think it's really important for CFOs, people exploring a CFO career, you know, the number one thing to me is you got to really understand the business, you know, how it works, what are the drivers, what are the levers, so that you can really be in a position to help optimize it and drive it and grow it and not just be the person that's handling the purse strings. And and so when you were moving back from investment banking, I know you said you wanted to go into like running and, and building a software company again, but you'd been in investment banking by that stage for a decade. So was that a a tough leap or was there any trepidation or were you absolutely ready at that point? Yeah, I mean, if you ask my wife, there she would say there was a lot of trepidation. I, mean, I remember <laughs> it was it was a it was an interesting time because um it was mid-2018. Avalara went public a couple months before. And I had a few interesting opportunities, people that reached out to me, a couple on the investment side, uh, growth equity type things, VC. And actually, there was a couple on the corporate side, different types of opportunities. And I remember thinking, you know, there's not so many times in your career where people reach out to you and ask you to do a job that you're not necessarily qualified to do. Just to be honest, you know, you're, you're taking a leap into, you know, venture capital or, op- or operations role. You haven't yet done. And it's because, you know, it always comes back to your next job won't be from your resume, it'll be from your network. Well, you know, you always hear that, but, you know, it was was really true. I had done good work for people who trusted me and we had a mutual good relationship. And they're like, hey, why don't you join us and and, and do this? And so you learn to be, I think bankers learn to be good athletes and they can be malleable uh, and do many different things. And so I, I felt confident in the ability to do these different types of jobs, but it became really difficult decision because I'm like, all right, I, I was one of the few that really liked banking and was like, I could do this for a career. So I wasn't, a lot of people are looking for the jump ship out of banking and then they're looking for the next. I, I really liked it and, and I could have stayed there for my career, but I had these cool opportunities. I remember thinking Ross, um, and it was from a, a mentor of mine, that kind of instilled this in me. To me, a career is about putting together many different disparate experiences, mm-hmm. you know? And so you're continuing to, it's not just moving up, but it's continuing to build various knowledge set and experiences that, you know, come together to give you a unique set of skills and experiences. And I just thought like, you know, having corporate experience in the startup realm, banking experience, 
and then back to operations at a company um, uh, of our size, high, you know, high growth software company that then was a few hundred million now bigger than that. I just thought that that was a really interesting mix of experiences that was exciting and dynamic. And and to me, it's like, I just didn't want to do the same thing for, for my entire career. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the interesting part is because you've taken on so many different experiences. We've heard like from different CFOs that going into sales operations, they went into that and ran it. And that, that's fascinating. I've, I've done a bit of that myself in, in a past life. And it's, it is a really interesting area. But then you went a step further. You were in sales. You were actually uh, doing business development. You're running, running parts of businesses. So yeah. in some respects, I, I can imagine at those moments where you're looking at those opportunities, it can feel like a sidestep because you're not progressing directly through corporate finance. Say. But at the same time, when you can back into finance, your wealth of experience is so much richer that you're a far more effective leader or far more effective operator within finance. You understand how the businesses work. You understand how the different functions to work. You understand how the functions need to work together. Mm-hmm. And I think you understand how to be more empathetic, which is a really important word in my career, to how other functions and leaders, what they need to do, what their mission is, how it all works, and how to work across the aisles with them. And and really understand, again, the levers that you can pull to drive the business. So just to be you know balanced on this for, for everyone to learn, by doing all these things in your career, you could say, okay, well, you did this for a year, did that for a year you don't have the depth of experience. So like, could I go be a sales operations, great sales operations leader at a billion plus company? You know, no, I, I could probably figure it out, but I'm not qualified to be that. I think I've had exposure to all these areas. At Avalara, I've had the opportunity to go deeper in actually managing a P&L now for three years. So I think I've got a lot of good experience as a general manager type running a P&L. And I was able to do that because of everything that I had learned before. And banking was a big help to that as well. You know, a lot of people think it doesn't translate because you're an advisor, not an operator, but it does. And, and that was a big help. So yeah, I think all those things come together. You know what questions to ask. You know how things should look. Uh, you know how to dig in with people and lead by example. And you know, I'm not afraid to get in the weeds probably too much. We can talk about that. And again, you really know how to this is what the sales ops people are should be doing, how they think about the world, how to be empathetic and, and, and get in into their heads and be able to work together with them for the greater benefit of the company's operations. Mm-hmm. So it's been a really cool, it's been a really cool path. But along the way, Ross, as you jump through things, it's like here I go again, learning something from scratch. And so you got to become really good at being resourceful and finding networks and being able to ask the right questions and, and learning, you know, you jump into a CFO role. It's like, you know, you don't have someone above you to ask, you know, all right, what do I do next? You got to go yeah. figure it out. And and that actually leads me to the question of that, that first experience as a CFO role, which came, of course, when you were, you'd had a vast industry experience, but you moved in with Avalara in your second position there. Yep. Now, your first experience in, in corporate finance, you mentioned, was you learned all the basics. What I'd imagine is probably a chaotic scale-up environment in that early stage software company. Yeah. And then and then your first experience as a CFO is for a public company, which is yep. an entirely different uh, yeah. kettle of fish. So what was that experience like of taking that uh, CFO role on? The good news is we were, Avalara, our CEO and our former CFO, were very thoughtful in this transition. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was bring me on, I'll operate this 
these businesses because our CEO wanted me to get that. that you know, he, I remember him saying like, I like my CFOs to be really deep in the business, really understand how operations work, work across the aisles from finance, understand how finance works from the other side and every everything else. And so the good news was I was also very close, sat right next to our former CFO. And I sat on his staff and we spent quality time together uh, after hours and, and, and during business hours. And we had, you know, one-on-ones regularly. And so there was a you know, year plus, there was at least a year where there was a lot of knowledge sharing. I went to audit committee meetings. I went to, you know, staff meetings, like I said, um, mm-hmm. there was a lot of information sharing. There's a lot of training that I was able to get from our former CFO. And then when we announced that I was going to take, the, it was like we announced in November and I took it in April, something like that. We had a full quarter plus where I was really running the job. I had run the budget yeah. process going into that first year. I had provided guidance and done the earnings call going into that before I was even formally the CFO. So I thought we had a really nice transition, a really good transition, a really methodic, well thought out transition. And then we, you know, we had a good team in place already. So I'm I'm pretty deep in accounting. I'm pretty knowledgeable in accounting. I've always liked accounting. I've, I've spent time in the weeds of it. I'm not a technical accounting. I didn't come up from that realm, not a CPA to be fair. And so there's different ways to come up and be CFO. And uh, I didn't come from that area. So we have a really strong chief accounting officer that's been at the company, you know, since prior to going public. And, you know, he's built out a really good team. We're still building that out. So that relationship is really important. And and getting deep into understanding, you know, the key practices that, you know, around software revenue recognition is always the first thing, you know, really digging in, understanding it, questioning and pushing at it and just coming up to speed on all, all the key matters was really important. And I spent a lot of time with my prior CFO really digging into those accounting matters prior to even becoming CFO. And then, you know, the FP&A side where you're more modeling forward looking, I think that's a lot more natural for a banker, typical path of a banker to go to FP&A. And I'll tell you, not that I knew everything, we could talk about some of the learnings there, but it's a little more natural to plug into that investor relations, dealing with investors, a lot, very natural for me to plug into that. I did a lot of that. You know, so those are some of the main things we got, you know, internal audit and we got a couple other, other, other things that, that we do financial operations specifically, but a lot of the other things I was pretty well in tune with. And it was Mm -hmm. like, okay, where do we want to take this? How do we want to build it? How do we want to grow it? And so I thought that the transition was, was really um, thoughtful in the way they did. I felt I had a lot of support. And then when I actually took over and, and Bill left, he's on the board now, our prior CFO. So there was still a lot of ability to work with him and and and, and continue the transition. So, yeah, I mean, in many cases, it sounds like best in class because we've we've spoken with uh, with other guests who there was a plan for like a multi year transition, and then something happened, and then sure. the previous CFO had to go and they had to dive in. So that can be a lot more chaotic. But the way you've approached it, it seems to have flowed through incredibly well. And I, to be fair, us as good as that was set up, there's still a lot of things, you know, deep into the night hours, you know, yeah. I got to make this decision. Don't have the experience on this one. How am I going to make this decision? A lot of reaching out to my network. I think having been in banking, taking a lot of companies public, work with a lot of CFOs, I've established a really nice network of people that are, some of them are formal mentors, some of them are friends, some of them just network of CFOs. There's a lot of great networks out there. I find myself in a lot, I spend a lot of time in these CFO network meetings that are very valuable. 
a lot of time reaching out to peer CFOs, a lot of benchmarking, a lot of how do you do this or did you adopt that or, or, or how do you think about that? There's a lot of that going on both ways. And that's been, you know, that's been real helpful. And then, of course, you know, audit committee and, and board members that have experience are always very helpful, too. So so I will say, you know, there's a lot of, hey, I got to make this decision for my first time. There's you know two ways to do it. I'm informed, but don't have the actual experience on it. And a lot of reaching out to the networks for help and advice. So when you come in, you obviously had the benefit of being part of the team that was that was running the company and had built the plans and so forth. But when you step up as the new leader, you've got an opportunity to set a new direction. And yeah. typically the, the classic move is when it's someone external, they come in and they almost make a, a massive pivot because just to, to prove a point. But yeah. when you're an internal there's a huge advantage in that you were already part of the team, but but you need to also signal change because you want to you want to use it as a catalyst. So how yeah. did you build that that new plan that yeah. was trying to say that there's a new direction we're on, give people purpose, but not undermine where you've come from? I, I was pretty slow out of the gate making change. You know, on the accounting side, we were already public, so the cadence of monthly, quarterly close reviews, internal reporting board meetings, external reporting, mm-hmm. that was all running as it must run as a public company, not, not a lot to meddle with. So on the accounting side and on the financial reporting side, you know, things were running well. I think there was there was work to do on the overall accounting and financial operations team to build it out. You know, for example, as a, as a, as a high growth software company that's now going more products and international, we were kind of early on the international front. And so you've got to go figure out, okay, what processes ARAP RevRec are going to be sort of global. There's a RevRec team and everything feeds in the RevRec team and they govern that versus local. And we didn't have a lot of local. And and so we needed to really build out people on the ground. Uh, We have people in the UK and India primarily. We're expanding beyond there because we were buying some companies and we were expanding our operations globally and we didn't have a lot of the bandwidth at the time for 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 international operations and we didn't have a lot of local expertise that can handle you know some things that need to be local so there was a lot of focus there second there was a lot of focus on M&A we tend to acquire a few companies they're usually small companies a year that 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 get us more product technology content for what we do uh, or even geo expansion. And we had never formally as a company had an M&A integration team or a finance M&A integration team. And mm-hmm. as we were doing more M&A um, and we still had companies that we had bought that weren't fully integrated on the back end, you know, it was time clearly to me to go build out an M&A integration team and to start to consolidate old stuff and and, and build a playbook for new so that we can get things integrated more quickly. That was a major priority. And, and one of my biggest things going on right now is, is a quote to cash transformation. So mm-hmm. looking at operations, say, okay, AR is good, AP is good. You know, we're putting in some some new procurement stuff, you know, software sy- mm-hmm. systems, processes, people to really centralize procurement and beef it up and and, and do make that best in class. We're transforming quote to cash, which we can talk about because that's a gnarly beast. So it's things like that. And then on the on the FP&A side, we were a small team. When I took over, you know, FP&A was probably half the size that it probably should have been at the time. So it was expanding the team. It was bringing in a new leader. It was establishing business partnership. We weren't really at the time. This is now, you know, a couple of years ago. We weren't 
partnering with the business. You know, the, the beauty of FPNA is you partner with the business and you help them, you know, manage the PL, you help them manage the key metrics and and help them drive growth and, and achieve their objectives. And and it was really just a budgeting FPNA department mm-hmm. at the time. So we had to go expand out and establish partnership. We had to go improve the budget process. We rebuilt the forecasting process around bookings and revenue, as well as you know the monthly cadence of of how we report and manage the budget and 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 the dynamic plan. We had to go put a bunch of stuff in place there, and then we didn't have an IR function. It was external. We had an external IR function, and and uh, we still have a little bit of that actually. I, I like having a little bit of external IR because they bring a pers- they're not blinded by the company. They they see the market. And we hired our first head of IR to go uh, internally to, to to go build out the IR program. So those are a few areas that we started to to tackle and evolve. I'd say most of the time was spent on um, you know building out FP&A and and some of the financial operations stuff. It's clear that you spent a lot of time hiring and a lot of time in choosing the right team members to come and join the team. And and this is a recurring theme that, of course, that's necessary in a, in a fast growing company like Avalara. But on top of that, at the moment, the competition for talent is extremely tough. So how do you approach that? And then you throw into the mix the fact that many people are still doing remote or hybrid working. So you can't do it in the way that you used to do it. So how are you building up all those functions and building the team in the right way? Yeah, I mean, I think we have come to a point where, you know, there's a belief, not just for me, but people I talk to that you got to try to find the best talent and you got to remove the hey, you got to be here. So, I mean, we're in Seattle and as our headquarters. We don't want to, hi- we've got offices around the world, of course, but, you know, if you're in Seattle, Bay Area for tech, there's a lot of pools of talent, but you can't hi- hire everybody there. So I think by expanding the aperture of where you're willing to hire, I think by being willing to say, okay, there's some senior leaders that aren't on the ground here and that's okay. Mm-hmm. It, it's opened up more opportunities. That said, everyone else is doing that too. And so, you know, having a global hiring pool or or a broader hiring pool, um, a lot of others are doing that. So it wasn't a big problem until like the last 12 months, probably. I think in the last 12 months, things, especially last summer, I remember we were, I was on some CFO calls last summer and, and everyone like at the same time was like, hey, did something change where like all of a sudden, like everyone's getting more expensive and a lot more people just like leaving and going other places. And all. But but whatever, it has been harder. We've been good on the churn side on the finance team. Don't know why. What The things that we work on, we do work on employee engagement. We do work on culture and morale and all that stuff. And the, the finance teams, it's not me, it's the leaders that I have in place have done an excellent job of producing some of the highest scores in the company yeah on our employee engagement round. I had somebody actually say, there's someone on our team who she's on the FP&A team and she was on our another team before and another team wanted her to join their team. So she was looking at different options. And And I was talking to her saying, hey, we really value on the team and and uh, we want you to stay and here's this kind of career path that we can we can make. And and she was like, I really do want to be on this team. You guys have you know really high engagement scores and it's not just about the scores but you can feel it people care about each other it's empathetic you guys are clear in your direction you know you know know what you're doing driving the ship so i just think like being really clear in your mission setting clear goals and and objectives and 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 sort of how you're going to get there you know how you're going to measure it mm-hmm. you know how do people ladder up you know it's very important that goals objectives whatever you want to call them and and, and key results 
cascade down. Mm-hmm. Everybody understands the mission. Everybody's aligned to it. Empathetic culture. Career paths are really important. How do you create the vacuum where you can actually pull people up and people can see, hey, things are moving. I can put my hand up. I can get a career path going. I don't have to just go look outside the company. So some of those things may be obvious, Ross, but I think we've done a nice job of building a good team. And that all, all, all comes down to great leadership. And I think we've been able to keep the team in place. That that All that said, I've had to come up. I, I, I've hired a new VP of financial ops last year. He's not local. He's a remote employee. And uh, we're just now hiring a new head of FP&A because my prior one, went to be a CFO. So, so the good guys, you know, there, there's a lot of people looking for CFOs. The good people are, are, are going and getting CFO opportunities. So I'm having to backfill those and it's taken you know, a long time. It's taken yeah. a long time to get the right candidate. But yeah, I can imagine that. And, and one of the things you allude to as well is that as you become more distributed, the dependency on technology is really important. And a theme that's come up with many of our guests is that yeah. Within finance, there's a lot of an operational like responsibility. But the more that you can abstract your team away from that using technology so that they can focus on higher value activities, whether that's analysis or forecasting or partnering, that seems to be a, an accelerating trend. And I know that you're particularly passionate about the impact and on potential of technology within finance. Is that something that you and your team are investing in to try and build, again, the employee engagement? Yeah, I mean, we are. I mean, first, you know, and and this is, I think, a, a benefit of being a technology company and what we do is, you know, through the pandemic, you know, going remote. We were nervous at first, right? Oh, my God, we're all going to be remote. Are we going to be able to close the quarter on time? Is it going to affect our processes? And it didn't. There was, you know, a couple months of maybe adjustment, but it really worked well for the, for the whole company, not just for finance. And, you know, obviously, there's other industries where you got to be you can't be remote. And so I feel like we're all very lucky in that regard in the tech space. And mm-hmm. uh, we've been able to execute really well. You know, for finance, I, I think underlying all this is like, how do you automate routine functions? And that's really the promise of software, right? So as a software company, we're, you know, we're a tax automation company. It's just like payroll where it's absurd to think that you're going to do payroll manually anymore. There's always payroll software companies. Well, you know, tax, same thing. You've got all these sales tax and customs duties and VAD, and, and then you've got to file returns, you got to deal with exemptions. There's all these complications that are government requirements. We just think over time, everyone's going to automate that, right? Yeah. And so our business is in automating and, 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 and eliminating the wasteful burden on personnel that is tax to so free them up to go do other things. So, you know, we want to live that. Now, I will say... I think we're a little bit behind on sort of adoption of like robotic process automation and some of these either automating through like robots or actually just putting in certain newer pieces of software that do a better job of automation. And so that is, Ross, a important goal that we've we've revived and we've brought forth. I think we've been doing a lot of foundational building. Hey, we got to build out the international team. You know, a lot of foundational building. We got to expand FP&A from small to right size, right? Mm -hmm. To now it's like, okay, AR is a tried and true function. Do we have the right system to, you know, you've got NetSuite and you're doing AR and and we're doing collections and everything's going well. The metrics all look good. But how can we really automate this and free some of these really great people in AR to go do more things or better Mm -hmm. things or, or, or expand their career? You know, AP, same thing, you know, sales commissions. You know, there's a lot of these things that are just tried and true things. 
every company has a different process and they've got their own wrinkles, but they're programmable in either software systems designed for that or this robotic process automation stuff that can really that can really um, automate a big chunk of, of the workload. And I think that it really starts with you've got to either the company has a center of excellence that you can grab onto for this. I found that's hard to do across the company because because generally there's other areas that are getting more attention than finance. Yeah. But I, I just we we focus on we hired some people that are come from doing automation in finance departments at other companies. Mm-hmm. And and then it's like, okay, let's go tackle this. So I, I think that that is money really, really well spent because they will start to automate routine functions and uh, make you more optimized, make you better, make you faster, and also free up your people to mm-hmm. do other things. And that can expand their careers, make them happier, make them stickier. That's fascinating. That's the first time we've actually heard it that in that sense that you're hiring or, or building a, a small team just to drive automation in finance. Yeah. You know, for me, it started with a person who's, he's a financial operator, but uh-huh. he's done a lot of automation in other companies. And so it's like, oh, interesting. Like before I had to go to like the center of excellence that's working on engineering, pro- other, uh-huh. other, other, maybe more interesting problems or high order problems, whatever you want to call it. But they're stretched thin and it's going to be hard to get them to, I don't know, automate my AR workflow or whatever it is. And this person, I was calling this person like, Hey, how do we do this? And it's like, okay, I know how to do this. Um, so it's like, all right, well, why don't we find another person like this and, and, and start to get our own small, you know, sort of without trying to build a center of excellence or anything like that. Like, let's just get our own small team of people that understand how to do this and can, can help us get going. So I don't want to over overstate yet because it's it's early, but um, yeah. we are developing that small team now and we're gonna gonna put it to work in in a, in a few areas. And do you have particular areas looking at the year ahead, like particular areas that you will invest in more than others, or you see the potential to invest in for automation within finance? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there, there's a bunch of stuff we can do on AR. There's a bunch of stuff we can do on AP. There's just other monthly like sort of reporting consolidation integration processes that that run that that still take you know people to run jobs or people to go look at and do these kinds of things over here and push some buttons and and so they're they're, they're things that are kind of a nuisance to people and people don't like doing them it's like i gotta do that it takes me an hour a month it's boring i don't want to do it like these things are generally very ripe for you know automate auto, automation so we're going to tackle some of that low-hanging fruit and then and then go bigger. And you know, the biggest thing we're doing is a quote to cash transformation. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's automation in the sense that we're redefining our systems and processes, very definitional, starting with the product catalog. What products do we have? How are they treated for bookings? How are they treated for revenue? How are they treated for tax? And really getting that best-in-class hierarchy and, and definitions out. And then really defining the process for you know, from the time of creating a quote to, to booking it, to billing it, to collecting revenue, what is the process flow and how do you automate that into your, into your uh, quote to cash systems? And so mm-hmm. we, we've got a quote to cash solution. It, it was built many years ago when we were really kind of a two product sales tax company, US SMB, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like SMB, US, two products. Now we got many more products, many more segments global. And so 
it's been kind of, and this is a very consistent story across SaaS CFOs that I talk to, high growth software CFOs. You band-aid these systems together, they tend to not get invested in. Back office business technology tends to be underinvested. My biggest advice to people if they're building a company is don't underinvest in the in the back office technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's easy to do because you put all your money in sales and marketing, but you end up paying for it more moreover later. And what often happens is you have data and analytics problems and you don't really understand your business as well as you can and should understand your business. And you leave points of value and growth and efficiency on the table. So, and I see it, I mean, all the companies I banked, save a few, all went through that as they're, you know, sub a billion, getting to a billion where overhauling their data infrastructure, overhauling analytics and reporting, overhaul and quote the cash. And it's, it's, it's complicated. It's hard to do. It's exciting though. I mean, we're going through this and the amount of automation we can put in, the amount of waste of time we can take out and just the experience that we can have for our sales team, for our customers and for our internal operators is going to be, is, is going to be great. And then the, the data and the reporting we'll be able to get out of it will be much more rich and much more informative that can allow us to make better decisions more quickly so that's the most exciting project we have going on. And when you say in automation, I think about RPA and bots, but yeah. you know, this is fundamentally automating your quote to cash with yes. you know, standard software solutions. And, and you don't have to do this because you're the CFO, but CFOs often have to justify a business case to themselves about whether yeah. they should invest in these things. And you've alluded to some of those factors. And but then many of them are intangibles. So you, when you say the availability of data uh, so that you can run analytics, that you can then be a more effective business partner, if you were trying to build a business case around that to place in front of you as a CFO, it'd be pretty hard to make that stick. So there's an intuition aspect to this. So how do you as like a CFO and a leader think about justifying the, the, the rationale and the business case behind that automation? In these examples, it's easy. I mean, because it touches a lot of things that we do in finance do touch so many functions and people. And so a quote to cash, it's like, as we think about doing more online buy, no touch renewal, you know, like customers can go into their porter and and, and just upgrade or downgrade mm-hmm. or, or buy another product or do many things, right? See their bills, whatnot. All of that is fed by your quote to cash systems. Yeah. So when products like, hey, we want to have a no-touch solution and you can do all these things, it's like, okay, we need to partner with the financial operations team to build that. You know, when the sales team, you know, sales teams like, it's like, hey, as we try to configure quotes, you know, you got all these SKUs because as over time, as we add things, proliferation SKUs takes them a lot of time, slows them down. And in sales operations, like, hey, how can we speed this up? Because we can give more time to our salespeople to go sell stuff mm-hmm. rather than doing quotes. Yeah, we all want to do that. Here's how we're going to do it. You know, the analytics, like, hey, how can we slice and dice bookings and revenue in, in certain ways? Well, that all comes from how do we capture data in our quoting and order process. So my point is, these are things that everyone from product to sales, sales ops, marketing mm-hmm. want to see. And so when you, it's kind of an, it's, it's obvious, it's an easy yeah. one. You know, if you want to go into, okay, hey, AR is a well-functioning machine. There's, you know, however many people, do, it's not that many people doing it. Collections metrics are fine, but we can go in and and put more automation in that and, and, and get some efficiencies and, and free up people to go do other bigger things. 
that's a harder one, right? Because it's working pretty well and the, in, the investment is, uh, is known, but the, but the outcome's a little more intangible, as you say, right? So that's a little, that's a little bit more of an intuition. And that's where I just think as you think about scale, you got to be thinking about, you know, if you're about to be a billion dollar company, you know, where we're not far from, next stop is a few billion dollar company, obviously, right? But like, now we think about what do you want to look like as a $3 billion company? Well, Mm -hmm. as a $3 billion company, like, not only is your volume of AR gone up significantly, but you've got a lot more products that you've you've got to you've got to build. That means you've got a lot more. Even if you're best in class on your quote to cash, you've got more issues. You got more people calling. Mm-hmm. You got more collections to deal with. You're now global. You got more currencies to deal with. You got more countries and entities to bill out of. The complexity has gone up multifold, and your team, if you didn't automate, is going to go have to go up multifold. And now all of a sudden you're looking and saying, "Wow, we've got a lot of people in AR." You know, wouldn't it be great if we had fewer there and more over here? So it's about thinking to a couple billion ahead and saying, if we don't automate ARAP procurement, some of these other things, um, we're going to have a lot of people there and we're not going to get to our G&A percent of revenue, however you want to benchmark it, targets. And and that brings me to a, a, an important point is in software, it moves so fast, it's hard to think beyond months or, or even a year. Mm-hmm. But I just encourage people to always have your three-year plan and look at, sort of decompose it to what it means. Like there's certain things that, okay, revenue is going to grow this, but like, okay, we want gross margins to go here. What are the three things that are critical to gross margins, right? And how are we, what do we have to do, invest in to do to make sure that those things happen? And are those leaders aligned to it? Because those leaders are often thinking about how I deliver this year. So what I try to do after the budget process is over, you know, we'll wrap it up in January, is go and put to the executive team and the leadership team, here's our three-year plan as a reminder. Next year, you kind of already know your budget because next year we know what the plan looks like. We know what gross margin is. And therefore, here's the three, four, five areas that really contribute to gross margin. Hey, this department, you kind of know that you can only add 30 heads next year. So you're going to have to figure out how to get more efficiencies because this year you added 50, next year you're going to have to add 30. And so I think really decomposing that and, and, and telling leaders what it means to them is really a valuable thing to do that can help keep people on the path and not have surprises around budgeting. Yeah. And as we draw the interview to a close, and, and one of, you've, you've given a lot of these tips already, but it would be great for you to suggest to any aspiring CFOs, like perhaps your old head of fp who's now just moved on to their first CFO position, what advice would you give them for how to prepare themselves and, and how to build the experience necessary to succeed when that opportunity comes up to lead finance? Yeah, the, the best thing that I learned is, um, is just like really understanding the company. Because to me, mm-hmm. modern CFO, especially in a growth company, and I've always worked in growth, you don't spend all day optimizing, you know, to get another point of margin, which is a different mindset. Like, I feel like I'm uniquely positioned to help get a few more points of growth in our company. And by really focusing people on the metrics that, you know, you look at the metrics at the top level that we report on, and then there's the internal dashboard that we, we all look at, but like driving that to the driver metrics that are layer or two down and really understanding, okay, 
we got to focus this team on this thing because that's critical. Like net retention rate, which is super important to, to SaaS companies. To me, it's six things. It's it's expansions, it's cross-sell, there's any pricing effects, there's downsell concessions and churn. Mm-hmm. And so we're really focused on how do you get to those six things? How do you understand the key, the top three drivers of each? And then how do you set targets on each so that you can drive it to where you want? Two years ago, it was like, okay, what was NRR this quarter? It was backward looking. It was like, oh, it came out here. You know, okay, great. Now it's like, okay, we want to get to here as a forecast. Here's the levers to do it. How do we really task of functional leaders to do it? And so my, my point is, um, you as a CFO, you have to really understand the business. You have to really, that's, that's why I really like working in the operations. So get deep in the business, understand the operations, understand what drives and motivates the leaders of the different functions. Um, and then you're situated to be able to help them achieve their objectives. In a growth mm-hmm. company, it's about how do we unlock more growth? So how do I help facilitate the reporting and the metrics that matter to help them understand and make the right decisions that can remove friction and drive growth? I think that's super important. It comes down to really understanding the business. That That's the most important thing. And then, you know, everyone says it, and I, I almost hate saying it um, because, but it's, you know, hiring the best talent, right? Banking taught me like diversity and great athletes, you know, really can do magical things. And I think bankers were always like, well, such a right to go figure out really hard problems with limited information and like overnight. And um, that's a really good skill. And then you go into a company and you've got all the information. How do you synthesize a lot of information? How do you make it compact? How do you make it simple? Mm-hmm. And and how do you communicate it effectively? I think that those are really important. So hire great people that can do that. And and I think last thing I would say is is communications is so important. Like I find my role is very much about how do you take complex problems, how do you simplify, how do you create simple missions that teams can latch onto? I know what I'm going to do when executed. Here's how many measured. So mm-hmm. you know, cascading down. Here's what we're doing. And then how do you communicate? to your executive team, to the whole company, to investors? How do you find the simple message? How do you deliver it really effectively? And how do you get people to say, okay, you know, this is the situation. This is what we're doing. I'm going to follow, you know, ultimately leaders, you have to have followers, right? So I'm going to follow this because, because this is, I believe in this, right? And so I think that that's a really important piece as well. Ross, I think that's sage advice for for anyone that's that's aspiring to be in your position one day. And um, for anyone who's listening who would like to like follow or connect with you online, and um, where's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I do uh, monitor LinkedIn, and I'm always connecting with people there. There's a million ways to get in, right? A lot of people <laughs> just email me, but I'd say feel free to reach out on LinkedIn and connect with me there. Right. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, Ross, today on the on the podcast. One last thing, if you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo, the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.